verse 14 through 16. And it's in your Black Pew Bible, page 986, if you don't have a Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible as well, feel free to take that one home with you. Uh, We believe the Word of God is awesome, and that is exactly that, the Word of God, and so we want you to have it. Okay. There are two groups of people in our text this morning. There are those who are persecuted, and there are those who do the persecuting. The dividing line between them is the Word of God. On the one hand, there are those who hear the Word of God, and they receive it. And on the other hand, there are those who hear the Word of God, and they reject it. And sometimes they reject it even violently. So remember that last week, the Thessalonian church They heard the word of God through Paul's ministry and they received it and they cherished it, received it for what it really was. They received it as the word of God. However, in today's text, you're going to see those who loathe the word of God. When they hear the truth of God, they hate it and they resist it. And not only that, but they lash out against those who receive the word of God and those who spread the truth of God. This morning, I want to start with those who persecute God's messengers. And that's explained in verse 15 and 16. And then I want to circle back around and look at those who must endure persecution because they receive the word. And that's found in verse 14. So there are your two points this morning. Point number one, those who despise God's word persecute God's messengers. Point number two, Those who are devoted to God's word endure persecution. So let's read the text, starting in verse 13 for some context, then I'll pray, and then we'll jump into point one. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Let's go to God and ask for his help. Holy Father, your word is life. I pray, Lord, that you would bless me as I try to expound on it. And I pray, Lord, that you would give your people eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to love, help us to love what you love, and to hate what you hate. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, those who despise God's word persecute God's messengers. So look at verse 14. Paul says the Thessalonians are suffering the same things as their brothers and sisters back in Judea. The Jews persecuted the churches in Judea, and the Thessalonians' own countrymen 
are persecuting them. So Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand that what they are enduring is the same thing that the churches that came before them are enduring. And that is this. There are those who receive the word of God and love it, and they receive persecution from those who hate the word of God. Then Paul takes them one step further. It's not just the Judean churches that suffer because they've received the word, but it also has its roots all the way back in Jewish history. When the Thessalonians received the word of God, they joined a lineage of people who love the word of God, spread the word of God, and are persecuted for it. So if we're going to better understand what it is that the Thessalonians were going through, and by implication later on in the sermon, uh, what we go through as a persecuted church today, then we want to understand what the Judean churches and the forefathers that came before them had to endure. Do you see it? That's Paul's logic. You're suffering what they suffered, and they're suffering what they suffered. So we're going to look at them. Well, what were those things? That's what we want to know. Well, he gives us a starting place in verse 15. He says, It was unbelieving Jews who killed Jesus. And it was unbelieving Jews who killed the prophets and who oppose the apostles whenever they try to preach. And they try to prevent the gospels from spreading to other churches. And it was unbelieving Jews who still persecute the churches today. They want to silence the churches. In essence, what Paul is saying is that those who reject the word of God are hostile to his messengers, and they always have been. They've been doing it since the very beginning. You can say it this way. Those who receive and spread the word of God are locked in a continual battle that is perpetuating, and it's with those who reject the word of God. When you take on the name of Christ, you're putting on a team jersey. And that team jersey comes with a rivalry. First it was the prophets, and then Jesus, and then the apostles, and then the Judean churches, and then the Thessalonian church, and it's Sixth Avenue today, and it's the underground churches in China right now. They suffer because they love and spread the word of God. And unbelievers persecute those who believe and spread the word of God because they hate the word of God. To fill out the details of this ongoing conflict, Paul points to the Jewish people's sordid and violent history. So that's what I want to do. I especially want to focus on that point. When we read our Bibles, we learn that the Jews have a pretty nasty rap sheet against God's messengers. Right? Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. The Jews coming out of Egypt, they resisted Moses almost every single step that they took towards the promised land. They persecuted and killed prophet after prophet after prophet. They beheaded John the Baptist as a wedding gift. They crucified Jesus, who was the Word incarnate. In one scene in Acts chapter 7, as Courtney read for us this morning, the Jews literally stopped their ears and began yelling so that they couldn't hear Stephen preach anymore. And then when they did that, they ran at him and they killed him. They stoned him. They've harassed and murdered the apostles. 
from town to town. They persecuted the early church in every way imaginable, trying to squish their witness. It's not good. The Bible says that these unbelieving Jews were a stiff-necked ox. They refused to take direction from the Lord and from his messengers. The word of God was like a heavy burden on their backs. It felt like a pile of bricks. Maybe we could use a, a contemporary example to see that. It's, it's like a dog being pulled around on a leash. Whenever God's word was preached to them, it was like they were being yanked, <laughs> and they hated it. They would resist it. They would, they would pull the other way, and they would turn, and they would start gnawing on the leash, always being violent, always resisting, always lashing out against God's word and his messengers who delivered it. That's their history. Now, you might be thinking this morning, man, <laughs> I'm glad I don't treat God's word like that. That may be true, but I just want to caution us and just say, maybe not so fast, right? It's interesting to me that if you were able to talk to any of these Jews, these unbelieving Jews at any point in time, they would have told you that they were following the word of God. They would have told you that they were in the right and that they were justified and that they were good people. They really believed it. And that should humble us, brothers and sisters. It should cause us to search our own hearts and say, Am I doing the same sort of thing? Is it possible that you are being stiff-necked towards God's word, all the while thinking you are committed to doing the right things and loving his word? So here's a diagnostic question for you then. Are you cherishing the Bible? Do you make time to read the scriptures? And when you do, when you read the scriptures, or where you hear something from God's word that challenges your behavior, what do you do? How do you respond? Do you submit yourself to the authority of the scripture? Or do you try to shrug it off and resist it, and bury it? Here's a similar diagnostic question. When your pastor or a spouse or a fellow church member comes to you and they exhort you, and they tell you the truth in love, what do you do? Is your instinct to be defensive? Is it to, to say, no, you got it all wrong. I, I'm, I'm totally right here. Or instead, do you test their words against the scripture? Do you continually make a point to humble yourself under God's word, even as it's delivered through his people? You see, it's one thing to say that we love the word of God. And it's another thing to actually follow the Lord as he leads and sanctifies us. Or maybe as you sit here this morning, you don't call yourself a Christian and you don't believe the Bible is the word of God. You might think that right now this is just some guy giving a speech that he pulled out of some uh, man-made storybook. Whatever it is you might think about the word of God, there's a good chance though that you think you're a pretty good person, that you're basically good. I want to say the unbelieving Jews they believed they were good. They thought that they were in the right. And I also just want to add that there's nothing special about thinking that you're a good person. Most people just assume the best about themselves. And like, yeah, I'm all right. I'm good. But when you think about other people, you know that isn't true. When you observe other people's lives, you can think of plenty of people who aren't good. 
It's sort of like saying, everyone is stupid except me. <laughs> Friends, chances are you're not as bright as you think you are. It may sound like there's a sting to that, but I just want to encourage you, lower your guard. Even try to think a little bit less about yourself. The pride of the unbelieving Jews, it prevented them from listening to a message of salvation, a message that was good for them. They were God's chosen people. They, they received so much special revelation. That was their privilege. But they were so arrogant and so prideful that they rejected it. They wouldn't allow God to lead them. And it doesn't work out for them. And I don't want that for you. So I want to turn next to see how this works out for the unbelieving Jews. By constantly resisting the word of God and persecuting God's messengers, Paul says the Jews were always filling up the measure of their sins. We see that in verse 16. The phrase, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. Right there. Uh, that phrase can be a little bit confusing, right? It's not something you hear a lot, certainly not today in our own language, and it's not something you see in the Bible a lot either. So I want to look at one of the parables of Jesus to help us better understand what it means. And that's going to be in Matthew chapter 23, verse 29 through 37. Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them and shedding the blood of the prophets. We can picture this in modern day terms, right? Imagine the Pharisees and scribes taking time out of their lives to go to the cemetery. And they visit the gravestones of some past prophets. And as they walk up slowly, they're carrying their flowers, and they're acting all upset about what their forefathers did to these prophets. And all the while, as they're going through this kind of ceremony, they're saying in their heads, they comfort themselves, I would never do something so terrible. I'm not like that. And the irony is so painful, because that's exactly the kind of people that they are. They are just like their forefathers. They're cut from the same cloth. And Jesus is going to terrify them and show them that in just a moment. But I want to just pause in a moment here for us and just say, I'm so thankful for the goodness of God's grace towards us who believe. Because brothers and sisters, think about it. We could just have easily been those Jew, unbelieving Jews who killed the prophets. What's the difference between you and the Roman centurions? What's the difference between you and Paul when he was persecuting the church? The only difference is the grace of God that intervened. And that's what Sean showed us last week from verse 13. It's God's act of regeneration that gave you eyes to see and ears to hear the word of God so that you wouldn't reject it and so that you wouldn't hate it. It's a miracle that you love the word of God. And that word of God is now, that you've received is now at work in you. And it's restraining you. It's restraining your sinful nature. 
and is sanctifying you more and more so that as you hear the word of God more and more from his messengers, you're not pulling at the leash. And it's no longer a burden to obey his commands. That's a miracle. I hope you know that. That's the grace of God. The Jews, they say they're not like them, but they don't recognize that they need grace just like everyone else. They don't recognize that it's their own self-righteousness that allows them to say, ah, I'm not like them. Because of the fact that you tithe, because of the fact that you don't say swear words, that means you're not like these unbelieving Jews who killed these prophets. No, that's not what you need. You need the grace of God to give you a new heart to love him, to love his word and his messengers. But the Jews didn't see that. They were foolish. They were foolish in believing that their dedication to the finer points of the law made them different than an unbelieving Jew who would murder a prophet. At a heart level, they were still stiff-necked oxen. They were still dogs pulling on the leash. Jesus points that out next in our our text here in Matthew 23. He says, You brood of vipers, you serpents, you hypocrites. Again, how do you not see that you despise the word of God and his messengers? You hate me and I am the word of God. And then he says in what should have been a terrifying moment to the prophets, he says, you're going to continue this legacy. You're going to do the exact same thing that your forefathers did to the prophets. He prophesied over them and said, you will persecute the apostles in the early church. I'm going to send messengers to you and you are going to kill them. You will beat them. You will stone them. And they do. We know that's exactly what happens. Then he says this, in this way, you fill up the measure of your fathers. So there it is. That's the phrase that Paul uses in verse 16 almost identically when he says, they are always filling up the measure of their sins. So here's what it means, okay? The Jews who resisted God in the Old Testament, they began filling up the cup of their guilt with the blood of the prophets. And the Jews standing before Jesus on that day were about to fill that cup up even more and more with the blood of the apostles in the early church. Okay, so what Jesus prophesied about them then, the Apostle Paul is reporting to the Thessalonians. Every kangaroo court, every lashing, every scheme, every stoning, every riot that was about to come against the apostles and the early church, it was all filling up that cup of their guilt and their sin right up to the brim. Again, I want to pause and make an application here. I said a moment ago that maybe you think you're a good person. You don't think you need the word of God or the Savior that us Christians keep talking about. Well, if you're saying that, if that's true, I want to warn you about your confidence. It's misplaced. It's just like the unbelieving Jews' confidence is misplaced. If you reject the word of God and its message of salvation while pretending that you are somehow justified by something else that you choose out in the world to make you feel good and right, then you're no different. And I urge you then, don't do it. Don't do that. 
Don't fill up the cup of your guilt with your sin. Don't convince yourself that that thing you cling to for your righteousness is really going to give you righteousness. Your own conscience bears witness with you, even against you, that you are not perfectly righteous. Think about it. You have been in situations where you knew what you should have done. You knew what was right, and you didn't do it. And you're, you may already be thinking, oh, yeah, but I wouldn't kill anybody. I wouldn't kill prophets. I'm not like that. But it's the same type of thing. You, like everyone else that has lived, have lied, have cheated, have disobeyed, have gossiped, have lusted, have hated, and on and on and on. And in your own way, you need to know that you are filling up the cup of your guilt and sin. The Lord tells us, Paul tells us, the wages of those sins are death. And after that death, there will be a judgment. And that thing that you are clinging to for your righteousness, it will not be worth anything. For these unbelieving Jews, the consequences of their sin is also death. However, their judgment is unique. There's a historical fulfillment to what Jesus is saying. Here's what I mean. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 26, Jesus says that all of the guilt and sin, all of the blood of the prophets that you've been filling this cup up with is going to be poured out on the head of this generation. Okay? Well, the time of reckoning was really close, like right around the corner. So close that Paul could say just a few years to the Thessalonians in our text today in verse 16, that wrath has come upon them at last. Do you see it? So what Jesus said was about to happen, Paul says has happened at last. Okay, then we need to ask, if the judgment has already been fulfilled, like what was it? Did I miss it? Like what is that judgment? Well, some commentators say that this wrath was fulfilled uh, during a brutal famine that hit the region. And there are some others who say uh, that it's the destruction of the temple, that that is the judgment that's going to come upon this generation. I don't think those are right. I, I, think, I think Jesus tells us something differently. And that's what I want to look at next to finish off Paul's description of these unbelieving Jews uh, who despise God word, God's word and persecute his messengers. So that's in Matthew chapter 21, which Courtney also read for us. That's verses 33 through 44. I'm going to paraphrase this parable for us. <laughs> a landowner developed a big vineyard and he leased it to some tenants to look after it. And then he went away into a different country for a little while. Uh, and then he was going to come back. So when it was time to collect some of the fruit, the landowner, he sent some, some people to go collect the fruit. Well, makes good sense. It's his land. It's, he should be able to do that. But the people he leased the property to, the tenants, whenever these servants came to collect the fruit, they would beat them and they would kill them. And they would do this prophet, or person after person after perfect, person. Well, finally, one day, 
the landowner, he sent his own son and he said, surely they will at least respect my son. So he sends him. What do they do? Well, they reject him. They kill him. They toss him out of the vineyard. Then Jesus asked the crowd, he said, when the owner of the vineyard comes back, what will he do to those tenants? And we're all thinking, yeah, it's going to be judgment time. He's going to uh, put those wretches to a miserable death. That's what the crowd says. And he's going to give that vineyard to some other tenants. He's going to give it to some people who will give him the fruit in their season, right? Well, here's what it means. God gave the promised land to the Jews, and he expected the fruits of obedience and righteousness. And when he wasn't giving him those fruits, he would send the prophets to them to try to get them back on the right path to be obedient. But what did they do? They persecuted and they killed those prophets. And then finally, he sent Jesus, his own son, to them. What did they do? They killed Jesus. They rejected him as well. This is all very familiar, right? This is the same story about unbelieving Jews rejecting the word of God and persecuting his messengers. Is that another way like we just looked at? These Jews are filling up their sins. So what will God do? Did you catch it? Did you see what he said? He said he's going to take away the vineyard. They will die in their sins, and the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to somebody else who will produce good fruits. He's going to take the kingdom and give it to anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus, receives the Holy Spirit, walks in obedience, and it doesn't matter whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. So when Paul says in verse 16 that wrath has come upon the unbelieving Jews at last, right? What Jesus prophesied has come upon them at last. He means that the Thessalonian church's very existence is the fulfillment of God's justice for the blood of God's messengers. He has taken it away and he has given it to anyone and everyone who believe in Jesus. They are proof that the kingdom of God has been ripped out of their hands. It no longer depends on your lineage. It doesn't matter if you're a descendant of Abraham. It only matters what you think about Jesus and whether or not you produce good fruits. Now, a lot could be said about how devastating of a judgment that is against the Jews. I and mean, we could really dig into, it's just huge. Uh, but I want to do something else with our time. Before we get there, before we move on to point number two, I just want to look at something that Paul says here in point number one, or, or sorry, in verse 16, that as you read it, it may strike you uh, in a way that, that makes you uncomfortable, that you don't like, and that isn't good. I just want to clear it up. So in verse 16, Paul says, Wrath has come upon them at last. Now, you might think that that's an exclamation of joy, right? Like, aha, at last, the wrath of God has, has fallen on these terrible and pitiful people. But that would be the wrong way to understand what Paul means by at last. He just means that the time has come. In one sense, yes, of course, he is joyful that the Thessalonians have received salvation. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing. But he is not rejoicing in the judgment of God against his own countrymen. And we don't need to do that either. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, the way he sets this up is so beautiful. He's, he's about to say something that sounds kind of extreme. And I remember the first time uh, reading this, I thought, 
Certainly he is exaggerating his point. But the way he sets this up is, he makes it clear, he is not exaggerating his point. So let me read it. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want to say. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Look how much he loves these unbelieving Jews. He could wish that he himself would go to hell if it meant that they would go to heaven. He's devastated that they continue to refuse God. I just want to express the same sentiment this morning. And I encourage you to feel the same way. It should not fill us with joy that there are so many people in the city who continue to walk in disobedience, people who we know in our day-to-day lives who are filling up their cup of guilt right up to the top. They reject the word of God. And we know them. We personally know them. And so we must tell them that the wrath of God is near. We have to have these conversations. We must plead with them to be saved. To the unbelievers in the room, I've warned you not to resist the word of God and to stop filling up the cup of your guilt. I want you to know that you can escape this wrath. If you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. If you will let go of your way of life and stop trusting in that thing that you think makes you righteous, and if you will grab hold of Jesus, then you will be saved. Hear his word this morning. Hear it. Don't reject it. Don't don't lash out against it. Don't pull away. Receive it. Put your weapons down and be saved. Point number two. Those who are devoted to God's word endure persecution. The unbelieving Jews' hostility to God's word and his messengers It didn't stop with Jesus. It continued against the apostles, and it continued against other church plants, always resisting, always fighting. And it didn't stay in Judea either. Their resentment spread out against churches throughout the Mediterranean region. They they were actively looking for ways to oppress the people who were spreading the word of God. But it wasn't unique to unbelieving Jews. The Greeks throughout the region, they also participated in this persecution. It's no surprise then that we find that Thessalonica and their church plant was planted in the midst of persecution. So let's turn to Acts chapter 17, if you want to turn there. We're going to read about the Thessalonica church plant. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's it's there for us. And when we look there, It's no surprise to see that both Jews and Greeks were persecuting that young church plant. So here's what happened. Paul went to Thessalonica during his second missionary journey. And as was Paul's custom, he went straight to the synagogue and he would reason with the Jews and he would preach to them until they wouldn't have it anymore. (laughs) 
And while he was preaching about Jesus and the good news, some Jews and Greeks, they were persuaded and they joined with Paul. That was like awesome, good deal. But this made the Jews profoundly jealous. And so what they did is they, they went around town and they rounded up some wicked men in the city and started a mob. And they started a riot. And things were getting crazy in the streets. And so this mob of Jews and Greeks, they actually go and find some members of the church and go to their homes. And they rip them out of their homes and they drag them down the street and they take them to court. And it's all because they believed the things that Paul said and because they were helping Paul. One of them in particular, his name is Jason, he was actually housing Paul. And the people and the city authorities, when they kind of were, they were on trial asking them about what was going on, is this true? They heard about things like, Jesus is king. <laughs> they were disturbed by this. They couldn't believe that these people were saying this. They even said that they were, they were turning the world upside down with their words. And so what they did is, I don't know, I guess they thought this was ample punishment. Maybe it sounded pleasing to them. They took some money from them. It's like, well, give us some of your money and then go away. That's what they did. Then they let them go. The Thessalonians, they imitated the churches in Judea as well, right? The, all of these churches, they were being persecuted in so many different ways. And the Judean churches, as, we, as we've looked at in point one, they were imitating the prophets and Jesus and the people who came before them, the messengers of God throughout the Old Testament. This string of persecution against God's people it's old. It's been going on for a long time. And that opposition to the word of God, it still goes on today. It, you can track it from the beginning all the way up till now. And since that's true, that means that we need to be imitators of those who came before us. So in order to do that, I want to pull out 10 points of application on persecution from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 17. 10 points, that's a lot. Uh, they're going to be short. They're going to they're be punchy for the most part. So we're going to be all right. L- lunch will happen. <clears throat> Point number one. Don't think it's strange when you suffer for Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. And he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So if unbelievers killed Jesus, our master, then brothers and sisters, we need to expect that we're going to suffer as well. It wasn't a surprise to the Thessalonians that they had to endure persecution. That's what it means. You're taking on the name Christian. You're taking on Christ's name. If he suffered, you will suffer. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us. That's point number one. Don't think it's strange when you suffer for Christ. Point number two. Christians often suffer from a general sense of insecurity. Now, by insecurity, I don't mean a low self-esteem. I mean carrying around this constant sense of physical threat. Okay, think about this. The Thessalonian Christians, they were just minding their own business, just sitting down, having a meal, when people dragged them out of their homes because of the fact that they believed in Christ and because they preached things like Jesus is king. Or think about Joseph. Right? He, was, he was just hanging out with his brothers. 
And he had told them about some dreams he had. He shared with them the word of God that had come to him. And he was just doing his own thing. And next thing he knows, they throw him into a pit and then sell him into slavery. Examples could be multiplied of Christians today who all around the world are just trying to live their lives, who are persecuted for the faith. We've prayed too many prayers about people in Nigeria just going to school only to be murdered. It's a fact of life. Being a Christian has often meant the risk of physical harm. That's the norm. And we need to be aware of that. If not for ourselves, then at least it should, at least inform our prayer lives for the persecuted saints around the world. Point number three. Christians often suffer financial consequences. We can see this clearly in Acts chapter 17. Again, the Thessalonians' countrymen, uh, they, they pulled them into the streets, they take them to court, and ultimately they just mudded them. They took their money because they received the, the word of God and were helping Paul. In our own day, we've seen bakers and photographers lose their livelihood just because they believe in a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. Many of us could probably share stories of people we know whose employment was affected because of their faith or because they spoke up, because they shared the truth. Be encouraged, though, because this is a reality. Be encouraged that God owns everything. We are rich in Christ, and he sees that. He sees that persecution. Point number four. Christians often receive a bad, rep- a bad reputation. I mean, so many people couldn't stand Jesus because of, because of the fact that he was preaching. And, and think about how poorly people treated Paul. Or imagine the Thessalonians' reputation after this whole episode. They, they are forever the people who helped Paul and helped his rabble. Could you imagine having to get up and go to church the next Sunday? Having to go to the store to get something after something like that? Their reputation has been, had been dramatically affected because of their faith. Uh, It works that way today, too. Being a faithful Christian probably won't earn you a seat at the cool kids' table. It's it's awkward when someone makes a dirty joke and you make a point not to laugh. It's it's not becoming to you whenever you tell people the truth about some situation that they don't want to hear at work. You know, like, hey, you shouldn't be lazy. Like, it's wrong to be lazy. Like, stop trying to make me be lazy with you. Like, you're not going to earn friends when you act like that. It's just part of being a Christian. But, brothers and sisters, remember, as Paul has talked about before in Thessalonians, that the glory that comes from God is worth infinitely more than the glory that comes from man. Christians often suffer a bad reputation. Point number five, be grateful for times of peace. So the thing that might be bouncing around your head at this point is this all seems a little bit dramatic. Like, my persecution doesn't look like this today. Maybe, you know, you don't fear for your physical or financial safety. And in general, your reputation is basically untarnished for being a Christian. So this sounds like a little bit much. Well, I just want to say that that's great. And, and I agree with you. That's, that's how we have it here. But I want to point out that that has not been the norm for centuries and centuries for Christians. It hasn't been the norm by a long shot. So we do indeed live in a, in a time where there is exceptional civility towards Christians in the West. 
And so we should be grateful for that, right? Paul tells Timothy to pray to that end. He says, you should pray for your leaders so that you may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I just think that God has answered that prayer for us for, for years here in the West. That being said, that civility towards Christians, in a very real sense, seems to be drying up, right? Uh, I, I don't want to make any political points. I don't really care to do that. I'm not going to like start screaming that the sky is falling and, or anything, but uh, just know that the norm throughout history and the norm right now in most of the world is persecution for God's people to the extent that I've already described. And it is real and it is severe. And brothers and sisters, we can probably expect some more of the same in the coming years. We need to be aware of that reality. Therefore, I just, as we just say, keep praying for our leaders and, and for the culture, uh, but don't be caught off guard if and when it, it ramps up. Okay, point number six. Don't cultivate a victimhood attitude. So in light of everything I just said, I don't want you to, to say, oh, persecution is sure and it's going to be ramped up and it's going to be so awful. Uh, that's, that's true. I need people to feel bad for me. You know, I, I just, I'm a poor, pitiful Christian. I'm oppressed on, on every side. People say bad things about me and, and people don't like my Facebook post. And we don't need to go there. We don't need to become a victim. We're always looking for ways in which people are oppressing us. That's not helpful. That's, that's not what Jesus and the apostles did. That's not what the Thessalonians did. They didn't grumble and complain and try to like soak up all the victimhood that they could. What they did takes a lot more strength. They just got on with their lives. They got on with it and they lived for the glory of God and they continued to preach and they continued to live in light of the gospel and whenever they suffered, they took it in stride. That's what we need to do. So number six, don't cultivate a victimhood attitude. Number seven, Suffer for doing good, not evil. When we get on with our lives and we commit to living for God's glory, that can bring persecution. It often does. When bad people do bad things, they suffer the consequences. That's not unique. That's not special. That's just how it works. But if we suffer for our faith, let it be because we are doing the right things. Let it be because we are preaching like the Thessalonians. Let it be because we are housing a messenger of God. We're treating God's people well. Or be like Jesus. Let it be because you preached about salvation and because you healed a man's hand on the Sabbath, you know, because, because you were doing good things and having compassion on people. Let that be the reason that you suffer for your faith. I was thinking a few weeks ago, we went and protested at the abortion clinic telling these people that what they're doing is sin and it is wrong and we're standing up for the, for the lives of the unborn. Well, that led to people saying some really terrible things about some people in this room. Just absolutely lambasting them and just saying awful things. And it's because they were doing the right thing. That's what we need to do. Let's be imitators of people who suffer for doing good, not be imitators of people who suffer because they're doing evil. Point number eight. Treat your enemies well. Part of what it means to suffer for good means treating your opponents with kindness. I said earlier that whenever you became a Christian, you put on a jersey and it, and it created a rivalry. You just stepped into this lineage of conflict. Well, just because people see us as a rival doesn't mean that we have to see them as a rival. It doesn't mean that we have to treat them like opponents. 
Now, it's true that they are enemies, and we need like a theological category for that. That's a whole other sermon. But the way we treat them is we treat them not like people would treat their enemies. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Right? And Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile with somebody. And if someone asks you for your coat, uh, cloak, then give him your tunic also. Our strategy in this conflict, brothers and sisters, is not to wage physical war. It's not to try to win on political grounds. Instead, the way we win is we persuade our enemies. We persuade them to see the beauty of the word of God, to receive him, to put their weapons down, to take on the name of Christ. One way you can defeat your enemy is by making your enemy a friend. Now he's he's gone. After all, isn't that exactly what Christ did for us? While we were enemies, while we were still in our sin and at war with God, he, did, he gave the best example of kindness. He laid down his own life for us. That's how he wages war against his enemies. We need to do the same. Point number nine. We're almost there. Remember that God is sovereign in your suffering. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Said in another place, what men meant for evil, God meant for good. We can see this with the Thessalonian church plant. The reason the Thessalonian church plant exists is because God took the sins of the Jews against his messengers and ultimately against Jesus and through that created his church. It was because of the sins against Jesus and his, his immoral and unlawful and evil uh, crucifixion that there even is a Thessalonian church. God used that persecution to do that. And God uses that same persecution for us. That's why there is a Sixth Avenue community church. God is sovereign over every ounce of suffering that you will ever experience from anyone. And he promises that he is always using it for your good. There are no exceptions. So let that bolster you while you suffer. Let that give you strength so you can suffer well. And point number 10, rejoice in your suffering. That sounds really weird, (laughs) right? In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were preaching and then they were beaten for it and they were mocked for it. And after they received that beating, they looked at each other, and as they were walking on the way, they started rejoicing and saying, how awesome is it that we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? I want that to be us. Let that be you. Because persecution is evidence that you belong to Jesus. If they hated him, they'll hate you. And if the world loves you, that's, that might mean that you're not belonging to Christ. So they took it as evidence of God's goodness at work in their life. And on top of that, when you suffer while rejoicing in the hope of God, you, you look a lot like Jesus, who for the hope or for the joy set before him endured the cross. Well, if that's Jesus' ministry, he suffers because of the joy set before him. I just want that to be us, to suffer because of the joy set before us. 
which is the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that this church will hold fast to the word and endure anything that comes our way because we know there is a resurrection. No amount of persecution against the prophets or against Jesus or against the apostles or against the Judean church or the Thessalonian church or our church today or any church in the world that is is undergoing persecution, none of that can take away the fact that you belong to Jesus and there is a resurrection and you will come out on top in victory when he comes on the final day and you will be glorified and given a new body and we will live with him forever and worship his name. With that behind us, may our lives be worthy of imitation as we imitate those who were persecuted before us. Let's pray. Holy Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for preserving your word and showing us the example of suffering saints that have come before us. And Lord, we just ask for your help that we would be faithful, that we would suffer well and bring glory to your name. Give us hope and joy as we look longingly to the day of your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.